Let me just admit something extremely embarrassing off the top before you listen. Throughout this episode, I referred to the book as the Karma Sutra. Now, this isn't an error, slip of the tongue. This is because I genuinely thought this is what it was called up until now. But it's it's too late to go back, so listen and cringe right along with me. What do you know about the Karma Sutra? Or more accurately, what do you think you know? Everybody knows it as a book about positions. Yes. The Karma Sutra is written in seven sections. Um, and only one section is on the arts of pleasure. So the Kansutra says that because you end up with a partner that you don't know what the size is going to be, the positions were created to synchronize the sizes. If the woman is too big, if the man is too small, they're not going to get enough friction. If the woman is too, too tight and the man is really, really big, she's going to be in pain. That's not going to lead to pleasure. The reason for the positions is that if you're going to have sex, it should be very pleasurable. If it isn't, it's no point having sex. In this episode of Lovers and Friends, Seema Anen breaks down what most North Americans failed to see because we were so caught up on the pictures about what the Karma Sutra was really trying to tell us. I said that Karma Sutra like Barbara Walters. Tonight, this is special. It's a milestone. That's what we're talking about on this episode of Lovers and Friends. Lovers and Friends. I'm going to take you on a trip, baby. I don't pretend I say. What's going on, lovers and friends? My name is Shan Boudram. Welcome to the podcast. I'm a sex and relationship expert, and what and where gives me the right to call myself such? I'll give you two answers to that question. So the first is the societally acceptable answer that I usually tell people. I graduated from school for print journalism, and when I did, I wrote a book that was called Laid that was published in 2009. After that, I went to University of Toronto and took a continuing education course to become a sex education counselor, moved to California, and I went to the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality, where I got an associate in sex education and became certified as a sexologist. I then went to the State University of New York and got my degree in psychology, and I am about to complete, by the end of this year, my master's in psychology at Arizona State University. Wrap it up in a bow, la la la, an expert, ladies and gentlemen. But if I'm really honest, the reason that I have faith in myself as a sex educator, the reason why that I feel capable in this field has less to do with the textbooks that I've read and the instructors who've guided me, and more to do with the informal books, the informal educational books that I have sought out on my own, or in some cases that have been gifted to me. And that dates back to how I started in this space to begin with. I was at a crossroads where sex was so confusing to me that I thought, heck, either I'm gonna throw in the towel and become a nun, or I'm gonna go to the library and figure this thing out once and for all. And that's what I did. And it was truly those textbooks um, those like everyday accessible textbooks that really gave me the confidence and courage to say people need to know what's in here and they need for it to be accessible and fun and inviting to them. And of course, on my journey of reading books, reading many, many books, and if you're watching this video, I'm going to show you guys right now a tour of my personal library and as well as a tour of my audio library because I'm a big audible and a big audiobook listener as well. And of course, in my many years in various libraries, I've come across the Karma Sutra many times and each time I've skipped past it expeditiously in assuming that it was this gimmicky book that in many ways was misogynistic. 
But as the saying goes, you should never judge a book by its cover. And in this case, you should not judge a book by its reputation, especially if the reputation is spawned in a culture that would never understand its basic principles. It all went right over our heads. Of course, North Americans would look at this book and be distracted by the sexy, wacky pictures because we are still very immature in our perception of and our ability to communicate around sex. We're still very uncomfortable with topics that have to do with pleasure, that have to do with agency, that have to do with consent. And heck, if we really want to go there about sex being religious rather than an enemy to all religions everywhere. And so... In many ways, I'm grateful for the journey that I've taken to now get into the Karma Sutra, and I'm very grateful to have the leader that we all are going to have on this episode, which is Seema, because for me, there was a lot from Catholicism, a lot from my North American upbringing that I had to unpack and dismantle and understand before I could even embrace some of the concepts that it was inviting into the world, inviting into my world. And if you're still in a season of wanting to clear your plate and invite new concepts with an open mind, I am proud to tell you that this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do your thoughts start racing right before bed or other inopportune moments? Does the self-talk prevent you from being in the moment or just being happy altogether? Therapy gives you a place to have those conversations out loud so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and hopefully emotional peace. For me, saying things out loud to others has allowed me to look at my own behaviors with a lot more accountability. A recent question I've been asking myself a lot is, is it my goal to appear to be a nice person or do I genuinely want to be a nice person? And the latter, it takes work. And if you are in a season of wanting to work or work through things that have been done to you, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lovers today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash lovers. Speaking of love, let's get into this conversation with Seema Anand. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Seema, I don't even know how I first saw you, but it was genuinely love at first sight. Can I just say that's mutual? But yeah, now go ahead. I love hearing good things about myself. Okay, good. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) another thing that we have in common right now, I also love compliments. Um, Your work is bold. It is sexy. It is sensual. Um... And it is changing lives. And so before we get into the life-changing book of the Kama Sutra and your interpretation or moreover, what you feel the misinterpretation of it is, I would love to hear your story. How did you get involved in the work that you do and when did you get involved? So, um, Sean, I work with stories. I've always worked with stories. I believe that stories are the most powerful tool of influence Stories are what change changes lives. They, you know, when when you want to create change, it's not by the laws you bring in or by the speeches you make. It's when you change the story. I grew up in post-colonial India where we were not taught any Indian texts. So I grew up learning. I, I can tell you everything about Shakespeare. I could tell you about Dickens. I could tell you about Thomas Hardy. When I came to live in the UK, I started to study Indian literature, wow. ancient Indian literature. Yeah, I know. Um, Ironical. But it's when I started to study that I got really interested because 
culturally, it spoke to me so much more. Lo and behold, I came across the Kam Sutra. I thought I was going to do like a 5,000 word essay, move on. That was 23 years ago. Oh my gosh. I am still working on this because it is the more you study, the more uh, you get involved with it, the deeper it is. What I realized as I worked on it that the book is a treatise. It was written in metaphor. We've lost the metaphors. We've lost the meanings of the metaphors, so we don't understand what it means. We also don't realize that the the vocabulary, the metaphors of the Kama Sutra um, inspired 2,000 years of our classical Sanskrit literature. And so it's like our literary heritage. And yeah, here I am today, rediscovering the stories uh, that the Kama Sutra was trying to tell. On a personal note, what drew you to wanting to even write that 3,000-word essay? So I think what happens is, um, culturally again, um, and I think it's pretty much across the world, but in some places maybe it's just more so still. No matter what else you talked about, no matter how else, how you how good you became in other aspects of your life, somehow this was an area where you were always made to feel just a little bit less. You were, there was, that was your chink. That was your Achilles heel. This is where you were made to believe that you just, there was something lacking inside you. You were never taught that a woman had the right to pleasure. Hence, if you felt any pleasure, you felt guilty about it. Um, you start to explore your pleasure in a particular way. Most of us, when we first start, you start by squeezing your thighs together. And it puts pressure on the clitoris and you come to orgasm and you don't even realize that's happening. But in a place where you weren't um, encouraged to explore it in any other way, that's how your pleasure stayed. And when a lot of women from my culture, when they come to adulthood, when they get married, when they come to their partners, they don't actually know how to come to pleasure with their legs open. They cannot come to orgasm in that state. And because I couldn't feel that pleasure that way, I always felt I was a little bit lacking. As you start to feel you're a little bit lacking, you lose interest, you become, you know, it becomes more difficult. Those conversations with your partner become more difficult because he's getting angry at this lack of interest. Um, he's getting frustrated at it. You're thinking there's something wrong with you, so you back off even more. It just, it was an absolute mess. Um, I decided, for me, like I said, it was just literally about understanding the stories of pleasure. But the more I read, the more I understood, you suddenly start to realize that there isn't anything wrong with you. Yes. Um, that you're absolutely fine, but it's just the narrative that is all wrong. And yes, so that's where it all started. When I discovered that, that's the day that my life suddenly flipped. And I felt this inner sense of empowerment. It wasn't the external empowerment. It was then the inner sense of self-assurance that made you think, yeah, I'm all right. And if I'm all right, I can pretty much do anything. And then that feeling is something that you wanted to share with the world. Yes. It's fascinating because... There's so many parallels between your experience and mine. And as you stated so poignantly, it's probably majority of women who have this experience because of the narrative, because of the story that's being told and the story being wrong. But 
I was always a very sexual person. However, culturally and um, both in my home and then in the school system that I was in, it was just highly discouraged. So I found myself really drawn to easy access information, which was like porn and fiction novels. And this, again, the storylines of sex that were completely false. And then there was the stories being told in my home and then in school that was also a very false story. And they were on two ends of the extreme. On one end, it was like, Pleasure is abundant. It's easy. What works for the man is going to work for you. You have the ability to have multiple orgasms. If you like somebody, you should have sex with them. And the other side of the spectrum was this is going to cause you pain. It's going to cause you heartbreak. You're going to get a green vagina. You're not going to be able to have babies. You're going to have too many babies. And so you're going to go to hell. You're going to be disconnected from your family. So these two stories existed. And I basically got a library card to see was there somewhere in the middle that was just a whole lot less nutty? lot less chaotic. Um, that could be true for me. And I never came across the Kama Sutra. Or I never sought it out, maybe because I thought of it more of... Everybody knows it as a book about position. Yes. The Kama Sutra is written in seven sections. Um, and only one section is on the arts of pleasure. So the book was written in about 300 something eighty. It was written for men. It was not written for women. This is a time when women are not taught how to read or write. It was written for wealthy men to understand how to live their best life. So the first section is actually about how to build a house, how many bedrooms you should have in a house, um, you know, particularly because in ancient times they believed that you, don't have, you wouldn't have sex on the same bed where you slept. So how many beds should you have in your bedroom? Um, some people even felt that you have foreplay on one bed, you have sex on another bed, then you slept on a third bed. Um, so, you know, there was there was quite a lot going on. How many hours the man should talk to his minor birds, how many hours he should spend being massaged before he goes for a bath and so on. Um, the second section is about pleasure. And in that, I have to tell you that there's a very small section, uh, a tiny chapter on positions. The rest of it is not about positions. And um do you know that Kamsutra also doesn't actually talk about the act of sex? It talks about pleasure. So that was another thing. But um, anyway, section three is about how to find the perfect wife. Section four is about how to marry the perfect wife. Section five is about how to seduce another man's wife. Um, section six is the rules for courtesans, because at this point, courtesan um, or sex work was legal. And there was a ministry that regulated the rules around it. And section seven is about lotions and potions. It's a pretty irrelevant chapter altogether. So that was the first thing that surprised me. Uh, the second thing that absolutely kind of um, spoke to me was the the language that it used. It talks about how a man should pleasure a woman and how many hours it can take. When I was growing up, we didn't talk about the clitoris. It was never mentioned. You talked about vaginas yes. and that's it. Um, and this is a time when you're talking about the clitoris. And it was referred to as the umbrella of the love God and the vagina is the sandalwood palace and so on. And I was really taken with the language, just the exquisiteness of the language around the sexual organs. Because again, growing up in today's world, every part of the woman's body is pretty much a cuss word. It's used as an ugly word. The Sanskrit word is yoni. And 
there's a lot of misinterpretation around yoni. A yoni is essentially a triangle, and a yoni is the intersection of energy. So there are many different ways of referring to it. It can be the sheath if you um, if you refer to it in certain lang- in certain um, conversations or in certain sentences. But when you take it out of context, it always just sounds wrong. It's actually the yoni. The yoni is a triangle, and it is the intersection of energy. And it is the creative matrix of the universe. There's a lot more words available from the ancient Chinese texts, which are equally beautiful. So they refer to the vagina as the jade palace, for instance, and so on. So it was just about creating really beautiful language around it, because I think it was Naomi Wolf who said that, Imagine a girl today growing up, hearing her body and her pleasure referred to in language like this, how differently she would feel about herself. Yes. How amazingly good you would feel about yourself rather than hearing your body referred to as a, as a series of cuss words, hating those parts of your body, thinking that they're evil, sinful, guilt-ridden, devilish areas. And I think this is the moment when that big shift happened, where suddenly it was like, you know, where you suddenly kind of walk into Narnia and there are little twinkling stars and there are butterflies and there are, I don't know, there's just everything beautiful that you suddenly I had sort of entered this world where pleasure was considered to be so exquisitely beautiful that you could not talk of it with enough elegance, with enough graciousness, with enough beauty. Like, it was just beyond words. Our girl Sima could not have said it any clearer in English, so allow me to say it in Spanish. El lenguaje es muy poderoso. This episode is sponsored by our fave language learning app, Babbel. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are basically just games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks if you do it every single day, y'all. Don't play yourself. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, they're accessible, they're rooted in real-life situations, and are delivered with conversation-based teaching. Babbel's courses have helped me learn real-life conversation skills that I use in my everyday life in LA. ¿Qué pasa? Tu atuendo es tan lindo. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent, which you guys know I can use the help of. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. For instance, one study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. So here's a special limited-time deal. Right now, for our listeners, get started for 55% off your subscription, but only for lovers and friends listeners at babbel.com slash lovers. Again, get 55% off at babble.com slash lovers spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash lovers. Rules and restrictions apply. I was doing that Michelle Obama dance. For me, the real moment came when I discovered that the positions were referred to by pieces of jewelry. And this is not because they were being prudish and they were like, oh, okay, we won't actually talk about, oh, the woman climbing up on top. We will refer to it as a piece of jewelry. Not that at all. It's because women were taught how to 
perform a particular position by how the jewelry moved on their body. So, for instance, in the ancient world, as you know, a woman was never allowed to be on top. It was a sin. It was, um, that's was the position of power. So she wasn't allowed to be on top. The Kamsutra says that the woman can be on top. But when you're on top, you basically just move your hips. You don't move your upper body. So you move your hip, thighs and your hips. And so women would wear these jingling girdles around their waist with lots and lots of little bells. And you made sure that the bells didn't make a sound. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so we never refer to her climbing up on top and humping her way through to an orgasm. It's like she put on her jingling girdle and you knew that she had taken her position on top. You have to excuse me for stopping you to constantly translate because my mind is just exploding right now as I think about that. But (laughs) for women who can orgasm from being on top, it isn't the up and down that we see often in like adult erotic films and the the bouncing, it's the grinding back and forth, right? So in essence, it's like the friction that you're putting on the clitoris. And so is the yeah. purpose of the girdle to encourage the woman to move back and forth in a way that would pleasure her versus up and down and erratically, which would make the bells ring um, and pleasure the man, but miss the point of being on top for her? Absolutely and precisely. It's so that you could perform it properly so that your pleasure would be taken care of. Like you said, you can bounce up and down. The man will get the friction. He'll get his orgasm. But how does the woman get to it? Um, for instance, the sitting position, you wore a seven-string necklace of pearls, which is supposed to move slightly side to side to give your lover a tiny little glimpse of those beautiful breasts behind. And it took me a good two years to translate this particular metaphor because it says in the Kam Sutra that the woman from the village will sit on the lap, but the woman from the city, the, the sophisticate, will sit on the knees. And I was like, you cannot sit on the knees because, well, you know, unless the man is like, you know, about this long. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what I mean? And then, like I said, it took me about two years to work this one out. So basically, you penetrate... And then the woman would lean back, put her hands on the man's knees, lift her bottom up at this point. And then she would actually just move her pearls because the rest of the movement would come from just moving the pearls. And again, um, if you were right up close, you'd just be bouncing up and down. It's very uncomfortable. There's no way that you would end up with, you just get agitated. It wouldn't be pleasurable, put it that way. So it tells you how you would have, how you would have basically executed these positions. And I love the fact, I mean, how gorgeous is it to say that here is this really beautiful piece of jewelry and how that jewelry moves on your body is how you're supposed to. So again, if you're on top, for instance, you wore long dangling earrings, which was supposed to graze in an arc against your cheek. Now, most people, when we say to them, okay, move this, you know, most people are like this with their heads because they're trying to figure out how to get that earring to move. But it is literally as you go back and forth Mm. with your head in a particular angle, that earring would graze. It would go into, uh, like swing in an arc. You know, it's just, I think it's beautiful. And it's 
mind-blowing that this is a book of instruction for men. What I also love about the erotic literature of ancient India is I believe it was written by a woman. Because, like I said, the Kamsutra doesn't even talk about the act of sex. It talks about pleasure. It talks about how much time you spend pleasuring your woman. It doesn't say then you finish with sex. Um, that, I think, can only have come from the pen of a woman. I think this was this book was trying to change the narrative of women. I really think it was just trying to change the narrative of pleasure. I feel that there's a real, there's a really strong undercurrent of a woman's hand, or several women's hands trying to change the story so that people start to think differently. Um, I just think it's a forgotten book and it has a lot, uh, it has a huge part to play. I'm curious how it doesn't talk about sex. And I'm assuming we're talking about like penetrative penis and vagina sex when we use that term. Yes. But it gives instructions for positions that have to do with penetration. So, again, the, the reason for the positions is that it says that if sex, if you're going to have sex, it should be very pleasurable. If it isn't, it's no point having sex. So if you're not really getting pleasure out of it, don't bother. Um, but it also says that one of the very first things when you have sex is for pleasurable sex, is that the organs, the sexual organs, should synchronize in size. If the woman is too big and the woman, is, the man is too small, they're not going to get enough friction. If the woman is too, too tight and the man is really, really big, she's going to be in pain. That's not going to lead to pleasure. So the idea is that sexual organs should be synchronized in size, but, I mean, really, it's one of those things you, you know you can't really I mean, very few people would put it on their tinder profile right this yes. is my size are you the same size as me so the counselor says that because you end up with a partner that you don't know what the size is going to be the positions were created to synchronize the sizes so you end up with different sizes and if the woman is too big then it recommends positions where she's lying on her side where her thighs are together where her knees are pulled up so she becomes a little bit tighter and so on. That was the purpose of the positions. Most of the positions are really, really sensible. Some of them are a little out of the box. Um, one of the most popular positions was where the woman would be underneath and her feet would be here on the man's shoulders. Um, because it says that the higher your thighs, the easier it is for penetration. A little variant on that. So you have one where she would have one foot on the man's forehead and the other one on his shoulder, if you can kind of visualize that. Yes. And it's known as the scissor. And it's just like, and for these, and then there was another one where she'd have both her feet there, but she would bring them down one at a time, put it back. And this is where she would wear a jingling anklet, which was supposed to jingle. So you could tell that she was keeping pace with the thrusting so that, you were actually synchronized. You were in the same rhythm. Um, but yeah, so there are all sorts of things that were done to help sex be better, but it was all about making it as beautiful as possible. See, but what have you tried because, and what changed your life? <laughs> okay, so I did try the, um, the jingling girdle. I have to say it jingled a lot. Uh, so I haven't quite worked that one out. I have tried a few of the positions. I think also, I'm sorry, but by the time I got around to trying it, I was that much older. 
And um, yeah, my body is just, so I'm going back for yoga classes so that I can limber up a little bit and I'm going to try some more. That's beautiful. I um, hate the fact that I actually began this podcast two years ago with an episode about my lack of ability yet to orgasm from vaginal penetration alone. And I ended up getting something called an O shot. Um, And it's essentially where they put like platelets into your clitoris and into your G region, which is, you know, extension of your clitoris Mm -hmm. or the, the stem of your umbrella in order to make it larger and more sensitive in hopes that this would lead you to orgasm. And it didn't. And so there's always this thing that I have inside of me because I have wonderful clitoral orgasms external and I can, I love the feeling and experience of clitoral plus, right? Like clitoral plus vaginal or clitoral plus anal, clitoral plus nipple, clitoral plus massages, whatever. Like they they can expand new forms of orgasm and, and sensation for me. But in terms of just penetration alone, that is not something that my body has experienced in order to get to that space. Does the Kama Sutra try to get women to orgasm from penetration alone? So I'll tell you what it does say. It says that a man should bring, uh, so because we're talking about man-woman sex over here for for the most part, it says that you should bring the woman to orgasm twice before you penetrate her because it is unlikely that you will be able to bring her to penetration with vaginal penetration. And I think that that's very telling. I think that most of us, um, thanks to Freud, try so hard because we feel that this is where we should get our orgasm from. And I think that if we could just accept that we can get pleasure from almost every other part of our body and can experience that orgasm in different ways. And I think once you come to grips with that, you understand that having vaginal penetration can give you a great deal of pleasure. So you enjoy it for the pleasurable um, sensations as opposed to trying to put pressure on it and saying, oh, I really need to get an orgasm from this and then destroying the pleasure as well and the relaxation of the pleasure along with it. I think that it's, it's like one of those things that happens very, 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 very infrequently. It can happen. So for some women, it happens all the time. A lot of women, I've noticed, can never get there, but they don't like to admit it. So they'll always say, oh, I'm okay. I'm fine, you know, with it, but my friend can't. And I think it's when you realize that, okay, you know what? I actually cannot get it like this. I've tried, but yeah, I can experience orgasm every other way and this is okay for me to just enjoy for the sheer pleasure of it. I think that's what, yeah, some things, I mean, I'm never going to be able to lift a hundred kilos in weights, for instance. So much as I really want to, I want to look, I want to look like one of those women, you know, gets in there in the gym in a leotard, bends and puts this, I cannot do it. So I don't know if necessarily you can, ever achieve it maybe you would maybe it'll be a once in a lifetime thing and you'll be like that was really fun i'm so glad i did it but will it actually compare to the pleasure or the orgasms that you get from the other parts of your body maybe not so i just think that yeah i think it's also something that we we try and look for just because 
somewhere along the way, um, this is filtered down to us that it should happen. Otherwise, I, I you know, if we weren't told that this is how you're supposed to have your pleasure or have your orgasm, sorry, I don't think, think we'd be looking for it. Well, we know that to be true because we know that men don't feel the pressure to be multi-orgasmic and they don't feel the pressure to have prostate orgasms because that circling back isn't the story that's been told to them. And I love what you just said about you might experience it. Like there, I, I don't think, I think keeping yourself open to pleasure potential is incredible. And maybe one day you'll have an elbow orgasm or a shoulder orgasm. And that's something that you shouldn't close yourself off to or say it'll never happen for me because there's no value in saying it'll never happen. The only value is in feeling good. And if that good feeling takes you to a release of sexual tension or a wave of euphoria, great. If it doesn't, then you had a wonderful time having your elbow stroked. But I think that taking away the goal-oriented nature of it because we feel like this is the ultimate. And I remember I had a video recently that was just talking about the difference between unassisted clitoral orgasms and assisted and people whom even with assistance, they, they just, it doesn't work for them. But somebody in the you know comment section was saying that I just feel so bad for any woman who's never experienced a vaginal orgasm because the feeling of it is so incredible. And I was like, you know, there's somebody out there right now who experiences incredible toe orgasms who feels so bad for you, right? Like, and, and there's no way, we have no metric of measuring how good something feels and your pleasure versus my pleasure or what you're experiencing versus what someone else is. And so it's such a silly thing that women do. And sadly, you know, we do to each other, obviously led by a patriarchal figure who invented this idea that the way that a man receives pleasure should be the ultimate way that a woman receives pleasure. But it is sad that we do continue to perpetuate this idea that there's a hierarchy of pleasure. And maybe I was afraid of the Kama Sutra in fear because I knew it was written by a man. And I knew that it was, you know, a masculine led text that it would sort of reinforce those same notions that do this so that you can become, you know, the ultimate sexual being, which is a being who is in line with what men like to do. Pardon the interruption, but I would love to tell you guys about ZocDoc. First things first, though, raise your hand if this sounds like any of you. You obsessively follow that health expert on TikTok. You take all the latest supplements that your almond mom recommends, even the ones that just don't taste that great. You embrace the latest diet craze that your best friend swears by, whether it's eating no carbs or all the carbs or only the carbs that grow on certain trees. So you're definitely open to health advice, right? But when was the last time you took advice from an actual good doctor? And if you had to think about it, it is time to head to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located close to you, and treat almost any condition that you're searching for. There are thousands of top-rated doctors on ZocDoc, and as some Somebody with two small kids, I am on ZocDoc.com slash lovers a lot. As a matter of fact, this last weekend, we were both at a doctor and a dentist for my youngest daughter, Zaya. Anyways, if you missed that link, here it is again. Go to ZocDoc.com slash lovers and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find a top rated doctor today. You can get this app free anywhere, but to show love to lovers and friends, please, I beg you, go to ZocDoc.com slash lovers and start your journey there. I think India is the only ancient culture, the only culture in the world that could make um, love bites romantic. 
So it actually has an entire chapter on love bites. Love bites were a skill that had to be learned. Yeah. And it's so, it was sort of, there were different um, shapes of love bites for different occasions. Each one had its own message. And and not all of them were, um, so it's actually the onus is on the man in this one because it says that the man has to have certain type of teeth to be allowed to give love bites. If you had chipped teeth, you weren't even allowed to give your lover a love bite. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's really funny. The most popular love bite, which is not the most exciting or the most passionate, but the best one was, the. it was called the dot, where you literally took, the teeth, uh, you, you know, you pinched enough flesh between two teeth to leave a mark which is the size of a sesame seed. Okay, so literally tiny. But then the man had to make a little necklace of that. So he'd have to go down one at a time, carefully spacing his love bites so that he left a little necklace almost or a bracelet of it. And I always laugh when I think about that because I think, Okay, so you've gone down one, two, three, and then the fourth one, you kind of go off piece. What the hell do you do? Do you kind of start again? It, it, it's a bit of a silly idea, but I think it's fantastic in the sense that it gave you so much. It gave the woman so much touch time that it gave her time to be aroused. But because the man is sitting there thinking of where he has to place the love bites, it stops him from coming too soon. I love that everything that you're saying it sounds like it would be woo-woo, right? It sounds like it's this ritualistic, ethereal way of thinking about pleasure. But it's like, these are things done for practical, tactical reasons. Like you're wearing the girdle in order to teach you how to move your hips in a way that's going to give you maximum clitoral stimulation. You are doing the love bites in order to increase foreplay and to slow the time down. Because even in North America, there was a viral clip last year that happened where an educator was saying women need 40 minutes in order to get to a space where orgasm is possible for them, that much time of uh, a foreplay and of, of arousal. And I would call that like non-genital stimulation. And that was so off-putting to the male host because I don't think he knew what to do for 40 minutes, right? Like, you, I, I don't know, I'm supposed to be making out with you and kissing on your neck and I've done that and now we're three minutes in like where does the other 37 go so I think about that love bite tip is just like that's just a way of giving instruction to create the time and to give the space and then to allow more creativity to spawn after that absolutely so even where you talk about the foreplay one of the most important things in foreplay was that the man would make a, a drawing of his beloved that was you know, just imagine that one-on-one -on -one time where you're looking at that person, you're drawing them. Just imagine the intensity of that gaze. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be one of the ultimate forms of foreplay. They also said foreplay should, sex generally, should be joyous. It should be playful. It should be happy. So you're supposed to entertain your beloved. This is exactly what you're saying. So speaking to that, um, you were supposed to juggle and do magic tricks for her and so on. And this is all supposed to be one-on-one -on -one time where it's time I am giving to you because you're special to me and I'm trying to bring you into this area. Sex was not supposed to be hot and heavy and fast and let's just get down to it. Let me gnaw the hell out of you. It was supposed to be this little gentle buildup. You were supposed to start foreplay with telling each other naughty stories or gossipy stories that would 
take your your brain out of the space where it was in the morning and bring it into a different space because you cannot have good pleasurable intimacy if you're still thinking about the deal you didn't sign or the call you didn't take mm-hmm. when you come into these naughty stories and, and you're kind of giggling over them and so on your headspace has changed a couple a few years ago i wrote a book trying to decode some of these metaphors um and if you like if you send me your address i will try and post one to you i will pick it up this second that is the beauty of 2023 you don't got to post nothing i'm going to amazon that and buy that right now because i am glued <laughs> to this screen right now just in awe of all that you're saying and so knowing that this is your gift i mean the gift of the person who wrote it was something very separate separate your gift is storytelling your gift is getting people to see and to imagine to experience and so i want you to be my teacher sima and i think everybody should want that too that's really sweet of you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, the book was written a few years ago, and there are a couple of mistakes in there, which we haven't been able to correct. For instance, they've said the vagina is the outside part, the vulva is the inside part. And I'm like, oh, my God, no, that's not correct. But it, it, putting all that aside, um, it, it's, um, yeah, it basically decodes. So there is a chapter that you're going to love. There's a chapter on jewelry. There's a chapter that you'll love, which is on perfuming, because there was this whole idea of perfuming your body in such a way that you, you know, um, in its simplest form, I mean, aside from the fact that perfume is so exotic and erotic and exciting, um, the idea was that you perfumed every part of your body with a slightly different fragrance. So it was a distinctly different fragrance, but you... you, you're not supposed to tell where one finishes and where the other one starts. So it, it's basically like a composite sort of shifting hold. Um, but the idea here, and I think this is really incredible, is that, you know, if you are with your partner, they're kissing you. They're great lovers. They kiss you all over your body. After a while, though, it becomes monotonous because they do it the same way. And so it says that each time you encountered a different perfume, it just brought you back. And so it was like you're here and now. Yes. Another one, which I think is amazing, is there's a chapter on how as the moon moves in its phases, your erogenous zones move around your body. And now this could be correct. Maybe it's scientifically wrong. I don't know. But I think it's brilliant because when we say to people, you know, monotony is what kills the intimacy. Try something new. Most people will go to their default setting. They will do what they like to do best. They will kiss you on the neck, then they'll kiss you on the breast, and they'll, you know, they'll do the same old thing. But here's a text that says, no, 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 it's the seventh day of the moon. You should be kissing her at this point, or you should be kissing him at this point. This is what you need to stimulate, and this is how you should stimulate it. Suddenly, it's like um, prescription. Yes. It's like, and you do something different. It's giving me the aha of like um, there's meal services that are, are their meal kits. So they give you the pre-proportioned ingredients and they tell you exactly how to do it step by step. And that gives you the opportunity to cook these incredible meals that you would just never do on your own. And so maybe pure chefs or purists would be like, well, that's not really cooking. But I mean, you're making an incredible meal and, and you're doing it and it's diverse and delicious and different each night. So that's what this is you know, kind of giving me the aha of is that this prescriptiveness um, is truly where creativity 
breeds because then when you're doing these things, you you get these new ideas. And I love even that. Like I use sense a lot with study. So if I'm studying, I have various different like scents around me or different candles because I find if I'm zoning out, I sniff it to bring myself back into the moment. Or if I really want to remember something and I want to tie it to a memory and I want it to stick there, I'll sniff something different so I can associate it with that. And so I've never thought about using sense in sex to do just that because mindfulness and being present is the greatest struggle of our life period. Um, I mean, which is such a privileged thing to say, you know, if you live in a space where you're not having to constantly think about your survival all the time, but resisting the temptation to live in the familiar past or to escape to a predictable future, but to be present right now is something that people really struggle with. And I know in sex um, is it a very huge problem and hurdle for people. Are there any more tips that you can give that allow people to ground themselves in the now? Okay. So, so I, again, I'm going to go back to what the Kamsutra says about the stories that you tell, I mean, they talk about just stories, let's call it conversation, before as well as after sex. So before sex, you're telling naughty, gossipy, raunchy stories because it's a different kind of mood that you're trying to create. After sex, you tell sweet stories, happy stories of people who came together um, and they were they were glad that they came together because how you finish something will define how quickly the next time it starts. So how you finish today will define how quickly she comes back to your bed the next time. I think that you provided such a hack just now to the conundrum that many straight men, specifically married one or in long-term partnerships face where their partner is not as excited to have sex as they are and that the interest wanes because the brain remembers events in terms of the peak and the ending. And if what you're doing with your partner doesn't bring them to climax or there's no clear definitive heightened point of the experience. And then afterwards it sort of fizzles out and ends with you falling asleep or with that person rolling over or the two of you going back to folding laundry and Later on, you're just not enticed to do it. And I think a lot of men spend so much energy on the before, like trying to woo them, trying to set the stage, trying to be kinder. And although those things are important, the focal point is ensuring that you're doing things during the act that bring her to pleasure. And that afterwards, that it is a bonding, connected, pleasurable experience that continues. And that's not something I think a lot of people think about. Yeah, you know, just that thing of sort of, like when you read a good book that actually has a, a, a really good last chapter where you finish, where you feel, yeah, I, I finished this particular book. You know what I mean? It's, it is exactly that. It's just being able to bring it to a close rather than just kind of like, okay, we're done. Yep, here it is. Yeah, and I think about that too because we reserve massage as a something for foreplay. But as an aftercare um, to say, like, thank you to your body and like, let me put your body in a state of relaxation because I just we just experienced a state of heightened arousal together could be something so, so beautiful. Um, yeah, that's just that's gorgeous. The other one is it talks about food. It says you always eat after you have sex. You do not eat before sex uh, because if you eat before sex, you end up getting bloated and that is not good for um, arousal. It says take five to eight different tastes on the plate. So things that taste different. 
you pick up one thing, you bite into it, and you say, oh, this is really nice. This is sweet. Here, you try it. And the moment you do that, you really savor that one bite because you've both shared it. It doesn't just have to be about intimacy or sex. It just generally as a, as a, as a way to be in the present. What is the number one question that you get? So I think the one thing that comes in, there's a few uh, of these, or, or a few variations of this, but it is literally just the lack of pleasure in sex. Girls, women saying that they are not interested anymore, or women saying that their partner is not interested anymore, or guys saying that their partner is not interested, it's, or saying uh, one or the other saying that it's really bad sex. One or the other saying, we just don't want to do it again. A lot of women writing in and saying, I just never experience pleasure. I cannot get a vaginal orgasm. And just, I've answered this question so many times about saying, go slower, take it easy. You don't have to get your orgasm from your vagina. You, you can get your orgasm in a different way. Um, I've just done this. I, I think I've just done it so many times, this idea of, even for a lot of men who just come too soon and they can't help themselves. Okay, if that is the case, bring her to pleasure before you start. There's less pressure on you. Then you can come as quickly as you want. Um, you know, use your fingers, all of it. Just this one thing that there isn't a prescribed way. Freud said that the only way of a mature, uh, I mean, the only mature orgasm is the vaginal orgasm. He said that the only proper way to have sex is penetrative sex, and the only proper mature way to have an orgasm is through the vagina. And we believed him. And it doesn't matter how many times you try and say something to the contrary, people still believe that. And I just think that that's going to be the most difficult thing to overturn. But I wish people would listen. I don't know how to make them hear me. I think we need to come up with a great story. And uh, I think that you're crafting that every single day with the work that you do. You tell so many beautiful stories. And speaking of which, where can people go to hear more of you? And where's your favorite place to send them? Okay, so um, I used to do quite a lot of the stories on YouTube, um, which is where the longer stories are. Uh, but I have to say that in recent times, I haven't done very many stories, but uh, watch the space. There will be more. I will also be creating. Um, I, I'm trying to pull out. I'm trying to pull this out of myself. It's not easy, but I'm trying to pull out this book that has been in the offing. Um, I was saying that we come from a time we're talking about a time when pleasure was extremely important and considered a thing of beauty. So back in the time of the Kamsutra, there were about 30 love festivals that were celebrated. And they were not love festivals like Valentine's Day. It was not for couples. These were festivals so to, to arouse nature, to arouse Mother Earth to her pleasure. Because they believed that natural disasters happen when the Earth has forgotten her own pleasure, when she's forgotten what it feels like to have the sap run through her, you know, how to feel excited. And so there's a lot of stories connected with that that I would like to bring out again. I was going to say, did you want me to finish with a story? Yes. 
basically it starts where you have this woman and this man who comes to her regularly. And one day when he comes to her, she, as they make love, she notices um, the fragrance or the perfume of another woman on him. And she starts to get fascinated by this other woman. Because like I said, if every part of your body is perfumed with a different fragrance, what you leave on your lover all depends on what you've been doing and for how long and where you have left it on his body. So she starts to get fascinated. I mean, just the thought of it now, just it gets you thinking that, you know, if your fragrance is all different, like it's not as straightforward as I've left my perfume on you. It's like which perfume on what part of you? And she starts to get fascinated by this other woman. And she starts to leave messages on his body for the other woman. So in the way of love bites, like I said, because each one had its own message and love scratches, which had its own vocabulary too. And eventually the other woman picks it up and she starts to respond. And so the two of them never meet, but they explore each other's bodies through his body. And I think that is my, I, it's a really steamy story. That sounded I think like it's the one synopsis. Of my, I need the full story. <laughs> I need to know what she said. What was the message? <laughs> what did she say back? Was she mad? Was she giving him tips? Was she like, what were they talking about? So they fight. They occasionally make love to each other. They never meet, but they actually do it through his body. So he just becomes the channel. And it's purely about the pleasure of these two women. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, those are the kind of stories that I went out to look for is unashamed pleasure. This might be entirely inappropriate to put out there, but Seema, I'd love to take you on a date sometime. Just saying. Anyhow, um, where was I going to say? Uh, listen to her book. I just got the audiobook. You can also purchase it, and uh, it's called The Arts of Seduction. Here is the opening credits if you're not yet sold. Introduction. So long as lips shall kiss and eyes shall see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Kama Sutra. This book is a guide to having great sex in the 21st century. It seeks to transform what has largely been reduced to instant gratification into a rather more sensuous experience. Before we end this podcast, I'd really just have to say hi, hello, I love you, thank you. So many of you, even if you haven't been reaching out directly, just your presence here week after week has been truly felt and appreciated by me. And even if you don't feel like your arms have been outstretched, I have felt your hand on my back. I feel it right now. Um, I just do. I I feel covered in community, and I'm just so grateful for that. I was actually a guest on a podcast last week or some shit. And the host was like, you have 5,000 five-star reviews for your podcast. And I was like, yeah. And I was trying to skip past it. He's like, no. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? Like 5,000 people have stopped their day to say, like, keep going. Like, that's phenomenal. What? Like, in most workplaces, we're happy if three people tell us that we're doing a good job or even recognize us. How grateful, how blessed, um, how abundant am I that I am in such a space where people give their time and their compliments and their love so willingly and freely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
And I want to read a couple. Um, someone, Kimmy says, great podcast. Check out the marriage pact. I love that. Y'all know this way to my heart because everything that I'm promoting is secretly promoting something else. Like if I'm on Instagram, I'm posting for Instagram, but I'm really trying to get listened to the podcast. Listening to the podcast, I really want to listen to watch the Roku show. Like there's always like some kind of like extra step that I want you to do, which sometimes I overwhelm myself with that where I'm like, stop telling people to go somewhere else. Let them just chill where they're at. Um, but for any of you who went and watched the Marriage Pact on the Roku channel, and there was a few of you in here who showed love to it, some people who watched that episode, What Happens When You Marry Your Maybe, are like, Shan, I did what you said. I actually, somebody here said this. Someone said, Jungle Hair says, I'm back. So I binged the Marriage Pact because I love Shan and her content. The podcast episode felt like a reunion, and Shan is the perfect person to host these types, um, showing her expertise. I'd love to see an episode exploring more of that analogy. I focused on the ramen for so long, and I've been trying to make broth, but I'm not sure it can be done. Um, she's talking about something that you had to have, you got to be there to know what she's talking about. But I'm just grateful that you actually went and watched the show. Thank you. Um, the Moonchild says, the longer the pod, the better. I love your long form interviews and conversations. That's great to know because I definitely want to be doing more of those. And someone said, not someone, Sarah Sa said, the marrying your maybe episode. The way Shan diffused, kept the conversation going and balanced the egos in the episode deserves an award. Thank you. That's like... Beautiful. I would love a second season, but I'll take an award too. But I don't need the award. You know, this is this is an accomplishment in itself. You guys are a light and you are love. And I hope that you are having a pleasurable ass week. And if not, let's talk about it next week. That's what we're here for. Bye, lovers. Bye, friends. Lovers and friends. Lovers and friends. I'ma take you on a trip, baby. I don't pretend. I say, lovers and friends. Uh, I'ma hold you down, down to the end. I say.